Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Speak the Truth podcast. I am your host, Matt Tardio. Today's episode is being sponsored by Robinhood. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to introduce our guest for today's show, retired United States Air Force Colonel Jeffrey Fisher. Jeff has been featured in Politico, The Hill, and BBC, along with contributed articles to the Kiev Post. He is an expert when it comes to Ukraine, as well as U.S. Air platforms. And you are going to see why in just a moment. Jeff, say hi to the folks. Hey, how you doing? Um, it's great to see you. <laughs> it's great to see you, Jeff. Now, Jeff, you are not just a retired colonel. You also have a very, very impressive history and background. Today, you currently actually write for the Kiev Post and have been featured on numerous mainstream media agencies overseas. Prior to doing all of that, while you were in the military, you were also the senior U.S. diplomat, the senior military advisor to the commander of the Joint Chief of Staff of the U.S. Mission OSCE. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding about what that title and job entailed? Sure, yeah. So I was I was blessed enough to be selected. Uh, I was very competitive. Um so as a full colonel, uh, I would go, I was assigned to the U.S. mission at OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's kind of like a mini UN, uh, but it mainly focuses on European security, hence the name. Uh, this is the organization that manages a lot of arms control agreements. So Open Skies Treaty, uh, Conventional Forces Europe Treaty, CFE Treaty, Vienna Documents. And, and as the advisor to the chairman, I would not only advise him what was going on, but I would sit behind the U.S. ambassador uh, during the, the forums and basically provide military context to what was going on or any of the security questions that were happening. That's amazing. And in addition to all that, you were also a pilot by trade, are you not? Uh, close, navigator. Navigator, excuse me. What's the difference That's for all right. those of us that are not in the know? So, so I just beat the pilot over the head and tell him where to go. Uh, but if it comes down to me having to land the airplane, we're probably in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> That's fair. How much experience do you have in that in that field before you uh, started getting promoted up into different roles? Yeah, so I have I have over uh, 1,500 hours, 500 of them in combat, so almost one to three ratio. Uh, I flew in combat in an airplane called an EC-130 Compass Call, which is a counter communication and communication denial platform, along with uh, an exchange program with the United States Navy. I flew off of carriers for three years flying the EA-6Bs. Wow, that's really impressive. And looking over at your articles from the Kiev Post that I'm putting up on the screen for everybody to see, you've got a lot of opinions when it comes down to the F-16s going into Ukraine. I do. My, my, my mom's probably the first one to tell you that I, I'm not uh, I'm not an introvert. So if I, if I got something to say, I'm not afraid to say it. Perfect. Perfect. Now, in addition to doing all that, you're also an author. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, I started writing fiction thrillers after I retired. Uh, they're all based on my military career. Uh, I, I realized quickly, as as we both know, because we signed an NDA with the United States government that we would never release classified information, uh, it's far easier to get a non or a fiction book through the through the Pentagon evaluation process than it <laughs> is to get a nonfiction book. So I decided to to loosely play with my military career. And, uh, uh, you know, that the tagline that, that my uh, editor and I put together was, you know, as close to real as fiction gets, because it, a lot of the stories, a lot of the sub stories within the overall plot are, are truly based on my military career. And if anybody's interested in that, we'll have links to his books down in the description below. You're able to pick them up on Amazon, which makes life really simple and really easy. So you were telling me uh, prior to us actually starting the recording that you actually were capable of observing when the little green men went into Crimea. Yeah, that, that's 100% true. So uh, as the senior diplomat uh, at OSCE, right, we, we would sit in, a, uh, in the forum with all the you know, 56 uh, ambassadors. 
Russia was there too. So Russia's a, a, a party to the OSCE. And as we watched, you know, the buildup and, and what was going on in Crimea, we were, you know, diplomatically on behalf of the United States government confronting Russia in a multilateral form, uh, forum asking, you know, what is going on. Um, uh, it, uh, uh, communications between the United States and Russia, which were actually fairly good between 2011 and 2013 while I was there, it had sever severely broken down, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, and, you know, the, the little green men, Russia would, would obfuscate and say, we have no idea who these people are. They're obviously... You know, people who are, are, uh, are just angry with the government and they're angry with the way that the Russians are being treated in Crimea. And, and of course, you know, that in intelligence at the time, and it's well known that that these were Russians, right? They were off the ships that had come into to the Crimean ports and and they were they were specifically designed for the mission to actually, you know, sever Crimea. Um, a lot of interesting things happened at that time. Right. So um, as an arms control manager in the OSCE, right? One of the things that I find interesting that it really doesn't get a lot of discussion in play is um, <clears throat> any nation can ask to do an inspection on another nation. So at the time, Germany had said, okay, hey, Ukraine, Ukraine proper in Kiev, we'd like to come do an arms control inspection on your facilities down in Crimea, right? So <laughs> yeah, right. So so they they were the, the German team right the arms control team made up of military members go in under diplomatic protection and diplomatic immunity right they don't carry guns they wear suits for the most part right but as soon as they got into crimea they got rolled up and they they got uh, they were held captive for for uh, i want to say about a week or two it wasn't uh it wasn't very pretty for them i, I actually knew a couple of guys on the team because of the the close-knit community of arms control in europe and one of them actually was was, was treated so poorly uh, he immediately, upon return, was uh, was um, medically disqualified from the military and put in the military pension program for retirement for uh, for that. So, Ooh. wasn't uh, wasn't a good deal, right? But but Russia was completely in control of this at the entire time. Yeah, and it's how do you feel about like Putin coming out and stating that it was the separatists that kind of like rose up and took over, and then eventually because that was their initial stance. It's not us; it's the separatists. And then it seemed like in his interview almost that he admitted that they went in to secure Crimea. Did it not? Yeah, that, that's, I mean, he's, he's, you're 100% correct, right? That's, a, that's kind of where he's at now. Um, but, you know, you, you, you often try and remind Russia at the time, like, hey, you, you know, th th this is kind of, kind of your modus operandi. At the present time, you keep saying, no, it's not us, it's not us. And then a couple of years later, you'll come back and, of course, say it was. And we, we tried to, you know, diplomatically through the, through the ambassador of, of the United States or the German ambassador or the British ambassador, who were all on the same side, right? I mean, the, the, these were all the, the, the key ambassadors at the, at the location would all say, hey, look, come on, we, we know it's you. It, you're, you're fooling no one. And, right. uh, and yeah, and, and, and of course, again, as you said, years later, Putin comes out and says, well, of course it was right. So, yeah, of course it was because we ended up getting overwhelming evidence and, and <clears throat> probably one of the most <clears throat> eye-opening things that I saw when I touched ground was, and I, and I'm going to be careful on how I phrase this is during the battle for the Donetsk airport. One of the things that, um, I think is very safe to assume off of what I saw was that the main primary force on the separatist side that actually went into that fight was Russian Spetsnaz. Yeah. And yet yeah. Russia will continue to deny all of this as they go through. And then of course we could talk about the Malaysia airliner that was shot down by the Buk missile system and several other things, but it was very apparent to the entire West that Russia was funding the separatists, not just 
with actual supplies, but also with military advisors as well. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we we somehow in this fast-paced world of information, we sometimes forget. Um, we, we forget truly what happened and how the buildup happened. You know, I, I I completely agree, and I remember after Crimea, right? So we, Crimea was taken, and then all of a sudden, U.S. intelligence and other intelligence started reporting that there was a large buildup of of Russian forces on Ukraine's eastern border. And of course, there was commercial satellite imagery, right? So you can buy satellite imagery as, as a private person. And this was brought into the OSCE because it wasn't intelligence quality. It wasn't intelligence. You know, it didn't need to be declassified. And it was presented to the Russian ambassador. And he said, you know, this is this is artificial intelligence. These photos are doctored. We would never have that many, that many Russians, you know, on the border or, you know, we have a couple, but it's an exercise and you're looking at I mean, these are hundreds of thousands of, of, of soldiers, right? right. Re- ready to go. Um, and then finally, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Open Skies Treaty, but Open Skies is basically where you allow um, an airplane to fly over and, and take pictures. And this is a diplomatic agreement between many nations, United States and Russia were, were, were signatures to this. And those pictures can be immediately shared. And, and everyone agrees that these are wet film pictures that are not doctored, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there's no excuse at this point to say that, you know, that this isn't, that, that this isn't a, a Russian buildup of, of, of hundreds of thousands of forces. And on Thursday, when the permanent council met, of course, everyone had the pictures they had, you know, they were shared Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening for everyone to be in a discussion. And uh, sure enough, the ambassador, you know, our ambassador showed up, I was behind him, all the other 55 other nations ambassadors showed up, but one, one chair was empty, right, for the permanent council. And that was the Russian ambassador. He, he just that. chose not to be there that day, because he just didn't want to answer the questions, which again, you know, it answers the question. Uh, but diplomatically, it was, it, it became really apparent, I think, State Department and a lot of the other other powerful members in the National Security Council and the U.S. government that that State Department can only do so much through diplomatic instruments of power that there has to be some level of balance and trust and agreements that exist between nations if you truly want diplomatic uh, diplomatic powers to work. And, and, and at that point, Russia had just completely shut the door. Right. Yeah, it's it's, it's really sad. I, did did. Was the information ever presented about the geotag photos of the Russian soldiers who were making their way into Ukraine? You familiar with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Right. So, and and this was it, it's not a, it's not sharing intelligence, right? The no. the Russians who really had not been involved in war like the United States had in Iraq and 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 Afghanistan, where we learned like, hey, dude, don't 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 take pictures that are geotagged and put it with your phone and and then post them on your social media. I mean. The, these Russian, you know, soldiers were basically taking pictures with their phones and they were posting them on their media. And, and it was clear where they were, what they were doing, um, you know, then and, and uh, of course, those were presented as well. And, you know, again, this was, you know, it was always dismissed by the, the Russians as, you know, that this is some kind of cyber uh, cyber effort to make it look like this guy's there. And, and you know, it, it, there, there was never a, there was never an admission of, of, of guilt, if, if I'll, I'll say it that way. Yeah, they're clearly just lying i mean it, yeah. it is very apparent to the entire west that they are just lying through their teeth and it it, it kind of i don't know about you but for me i i really wish tucker would have went a little bit harder on him you know during that interview and called out a couple of those things you know towards him but yeah. i also understand that he's a journalist in russia and 
that might not turn out so well for him. And yeah. I, I think his exit would... wasn't guaranteed. I I probably would have done that interview in a in a third third party nation. If it was me. <laughs> right. If it was done in a third party nation, maybe we would have got some better questions out. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, so interesting when it goes into that. Uh, so, how do you feel like the Ukrainians are currently sitting um, on the ground right now with the current situation? Yeah. So the I, lack of I think. Coming? Yeah, I, th- I think Ukraine's uh, it's 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 a tough road to hoe right now for them, right? I I'm not going to say that you know all hope is lost. Uh, I'm also not going to you know I'm also not going to sugarcoat it and say that Ukraine's fine. I don't I don't think either one of those are fair statements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a current as you know there you know Russia is making ground advancements. Uh, it looks like you know Ukraine's probably going to lose another one of their one of their cities, um, but but I think you know that 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 will be a setback. But the city's not named Kiev, right? So right. it's it's not like they're knocking on the door of the, of the capital and, and threatening the capital at this point. So I, I'm not. I, all hope is not lost. Uh, I, I hope that the U.S. government can find right. Uh, I do believe that funding will help. I believe F-16s will help. Um, but I, when I say I hope the U.S. government can find right, I'm not just talking about Congress funding. Uh, I can be critical of Congress and be critical of the United States president at the same time. I think that we have we he has failed Ukraine to a, to a large degree by seriously limiting how much ATACMs can go and and the ridiculous delay in F-16s and air power going into Ukraine. Do you feel like if we have provided more lethal aid up front, we'd be in a much different position as opposed from the inching our aid into Ukraine approach that we yeah, I, I, yeah, I do. I, I believe, um, you know, I, I'm very good friends with, I went to flight school with, with Congressman Don Bacon, right? So he became a general and, and we're still really good friends, right? Cause we put a lot of, uh, I guess we just probably have too much dirt on each other from flight school, uh, as, as lieutenants. <laughs> so, uh, so we're still really good friends and, and, um, you know, he and I uh, chat a lot and I just, it, it sometimes frustrates me that, you know, there are politicians and, and leaders who believe that Russia should have safe harbor um, and in the middle of a war, and there should be no safe harbor, right? I think uh, as, a, as a military guy yourself, I think we learned a lesson in Vietnam that Laos and Cambodia cannot be off the, <laughs> off the charts of, of the Vietnam War if we know that the, if the Viet Cong are using this for logistic supply routes. So, and, and wars are won and lost in logistics. This is, man, that this is known, right? So true. if we're... Yeah. So, so I, I believe that deep strikes uh, capability would have been extremely important. Uh, and when I talk deep strike, I want to get to where the bear bomber bases are, right? I, I will, if, if you, if you can shoot Kitsall missiles and, and other cruise missiles off of bear bombers, they're, they're targets, right? It's, it's that simple. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think it would have made a, I would have made a lot of difference. I, 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 I don't believe it's a wonder weapon. I'm, I'm not a big wonder weapon kind of fan, but I do believe that you know you can get into the Russian um, uh, the Russian civilian psyche if they know that they they have siren when warning alerts going on and um, you know they're they're the aggressor in this right they they need to realize that they're an aggressor going into another nation and they should not have safe harbor. Now I think one of the things that Putin is claiming for his main primary concern of going into Ukraine happens to be NATO expansion. NATO expansion, mm-hmm. NATO expansion, NATO expansion. It is very clear that sure. NATO never agreed that they were not going to expand. There is overwhelming evidence to support that. Yeah. Overwhelming evidence yeah. to support that. However, one of the things that he originally did when this war kicked off was he did a cruise missile attack on Yavriv, killed hundreds of people when he did it. And that was one of the main NATO training bases inside of Ukraine where they were conducting all that. And I feel like that was him sending a message and also kind of backing up some of the things that he said. I mean, did did you kind of assess that the same way that he was attempting to send a message towards NATO when he leveled that compound? Yeah, he 
it, it, it's interesting, right? There's a lot of political messages behind uh, targeting in 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 this war, and, and to be honest, in in what's going on in Iran and and the Middle East as well. There, there's these diplomatic overtones and all this, right? So yes, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's refreshing that you and I can have a discussion, and we both will will come from this discussion at a at a standpoint that. Uh, there was no agreement from NATO that it would not expand to the east. There, right. there are plenty of people out there that have a narrative that that is completely altered to that. That absolutely believe this can happen, and you, and you can't. No matter what you do, you cannot change their opinion. And, and what I would say is, I, I don't even like the term of NATO expansion, right? Because it was it it was never NATO's intent, right, to expand. It was individual nations' intent to choose to meet the requirements to right. join NATO, right? This wasn't a NATO expansion. I mean, if Russia truly believes that, then perhaps some some hard looks in the mirror for Russia are probably warranted, right? Why are your former regions, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, um, <laughs> Ukraine, why are these regions so hell-bent on joining? I mean, are you being a good neighbor? Right. If 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 there's a neighborhood watch created and you're not invited to the neighborhood watch, you're probably the reason that neighborhood watch was created. Right. So. Right. So that's yeah. So that's, you know, but but having Russia look in the mirror is a really that's a really hard, 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 hard trip. Yeah. Yeah. I 100 percent agree. And after after working <clears throat> hand in hand with lists and Estonians, I mean, their view on Russia is the same as Ukraine that Russia is a threat, that they're worried about Russian invasion every single year, and they do things in order to combat it every single year. Like that's how serious of a threat that they take it. And then when we see, uh, I believe it was the Estonian prime minister, is that correct? That just got put on a wanted list inside <laughs> Russia today? Of course, yeah, it's warranted yeah. for what? Taking down some statues? You know, it's... Well, it's yeah, yeah. She, she, she's wanted, but... You know that the uh, the Interpol um, arrest warrant really didn't lay out why she. I mean, and, that, and that's you know Russia standard, right? We, we just we don't like what she's doing in her country, so therefore she's she's on she's she's wanted for arrest. <laughs> right. Yeah. So <laughs> let's let's dive into the F 16s for a minute, if you don't mind. <clears throat> I hope all of you watching are getting some very useful insight from Jeffrey. Now, if you would, give me just one second to tell you about Robinhood. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement accounts with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024, validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk, including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to specific terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Sure. So they are, to the best of my knowledge from open source, due to arrive between spring and summer this year. 
how large no disagreement no disagreement <laughs> how large of an impact do you see that having on the battlefield yeah so i i love the fact that they're getting 24 i'd really love if they were getting 240 i think there's a factor of 10 that's missing here when people ask me you know our f-16 is going to make a difference um 24 will make a dent uh 240 will will, will total the car right so um look i, I think there's some context that, that perhaps your viewers uh, would benefit from right. So I I completely agree that the F-16s that these uh, that the Ukrainians are getting are, are older model F-16s, right? So they have the older AI radar, airborne intercept radar. Mm -hmm. uh, they they're they're not as sexy as like a Block 70. What's rolling off the line right now of F-16s? I completely agree. But we we sometimes in the aviation world, or at least you know people who aren't really familiar with it, they get into this. I want to compare an F-16 to a MiG-29, or I want to compare an F-16 to a Su-30, right? And the problem is, is it, this isn't air air threats today or air air fights, air campaigns, if you will, are are no longer a boxing match. It's not one on one in the ring, and everyone else just sits outside. You got to kind of think of it more like a bar fight, right? So, so on the and on the F-16 side, you've got Patriot missile systems, you've got intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance systems that are all feeding this common air picture that will be data linked into the jet. Right. So to be fair, the F-16 pilot, he would be almost foolish to turn his F-16 radar on and tip off where he is to, you know, to the enemy. I mean, if he if he's getting a good enough air picture from all the other radars out there, and then intelligence systems are not only just telling him what the what the radar picture is, but they're tagging things as you know, this is a XYZ threat, this is mm -hmm. uh friendly, this is a well, you just all you have to do is look at your map, right? And 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 then you're doing far better. So I, and Yes, AWACS does have an air picture system, right? So they have the AN-50, one of them just recently crashed, uh, and they do have data link systems, so their pilots get it as well. But but they only have six of these airframes, right? They they Their data link system is nowhere near to the capability of the, of the U.S. data link system. Sure. So I really, I do believe that F-16s are going to come in and actually be able to create maybe not full air superiority over Ukraine, but it will be able to create pockets of air superiority. Those pockets could be geographically defined. They could be time specific, right? We'll we will establish air superiority from twelve noon to you know for, to twenty four Z in this region. And and as a as a guy on the ground, and look, I, I did a PRT command in in Afghanistan for one year, right? So I was a PRT commander. So awesome. I loved being yeah, I loved being able to go to bed at night knowing that I was never going, I might be killed by a mortar round, I might be killed by an artillery round, but I was never going to be killed by an enemy aircraft coming in and, and coming over the top of my head and 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 bombing my base. And and I do believe air security does have a role. I, our military, your, yours and mine, God bless us as taxpayers, right, was completely redesigned after Desert Storm when we realized how important air superiority was. And, and you know, part of our army, unfortunately, was severely sliced back so that, you know, that we could could have air power. And, and you know, we in 1999, the United States military, um, along with the coalition partners, actually brought Slobodan Milosevic to his knees to the bargaining table with only air power mm -hmm. right now. I'm not stupid enough to believe that air power can not only win, but sustain wars. 
we might be able to win. But at the end of the day, we had to put, you know, tens of thousands of U.S. forces into Kosovo because you can't put a, you know, you can't put your boot up someone's ass unless you put a boot on the ground. And, right. I, and I believe that, too. Right. So. So, um, yeah, but air power was was a dominant factor to set the conditions for that to happen on the ground. I believe the same thing in Ukraine. We need air power to set conditions on the ground for them to, to have better luck. Now, my view on bringing in that air power is, you know, you were on a PRT. For those that don't know, PRT, Provincial Reconstruction Team. I said that correctly. I was never on a PRT, but I believe that's how it was, right? So you've got yeah. experience being on the ground and obviously seeing coordination with aircraft. So the the key to making aircraft actually fit in battle, and I know those pilots are going through extensive training to be able to fly and, and function those aircraft. Mm -hmm. but my worry about them being incorporated in is the troops on the ground never having worked with those airframes before and the pilots have never been able to like never been working with the ukrainian troops on the ground before is their integration of them into the battle and that's one of the things that they often you know get criticized for i know i've criticized the ukrainian military <coughs> to where the troops on the ground are good at what they do but the overall coordination has been quite poor going into it as far as like the battlefronts go so do you think it's going to be an issue for the troops on the ground to incorporate in the airframes when it comes to the actual fights? Because that makes a huge difference. Yeah, it, it's, that's a great point. Right. And, and to give context to your question, right. Um, we have a thing called a JTAC, right. And th right. this is a well, well, well-trained aviator that actually goes in and embeds with ground forces and is a joint terminal air or joint, terminal air traffic control, right? This is the guy that tells the pilot, hey, here's where we are. Here's the bad guy. Uh, go bomb him. And and it's not, this is not an easy thing to do because the pilot's usually flying at 480 knots at 500 feet off the ground. He, he doesn't have all day to try and figure out where you're talking about to drop the bomb, right? So a JTAC is, ex they're extremely valuable to ground forces. Uh, they're very, very well trained and they, they work on a thing called a nine line. Right. So for your, your listeners out there, there's nine pieces of information that a pilot needs in the correct order right, for, for, for writing down on his, on his kneeboard card to be able to go in and execute a mission. I do agree that there is concern that, that there's going to be some coordination issues. My hope is that the ground forces that would, would need this kind of close air support and the, the, the capabilities of the JTAC are, they they won't be able to be trained as JTACs, right? But but we, we we've gone digital to a degree, and there are systems out there where they can put the nine lines of information in digitally and data burst it to the pilot. It's it's not a it's not an end all be all. I wouldn't say that's going to get it right every time, and I, I I sadly I would not be surprised if there's some blue on blue fratricide of you know bombs falling on the wrong on the wrong side, um, but I. I I also would say, and, and so, so yes, yes, your, your, your question, right. But I would also say, I'm not so sure that the first bit of F-16 usage that I'm going to have there is going to be, you know, in the mud, close air support, right. I'm going to, the first thing I want to do is F-16s. I want to roll back that air defense system that Russia That's has. Next question for you. Right. Yeah. So I, I want to be able to hit those S-400s. I'm going to shoot harm missiles that, you know, not just off of my airplane, but I'm going to have my my friend, the, the MiG-29 pilot now that can carry them. I'm going to have him riddle them off. 
I'm going to be, you know, using precision guided weapons. I'm just going to roll that air defense system back so I can gain some ability to, to be in that air. Right. And then when I start talking about, um, combating the Russian air force, right? So now I'm going to go toe to toe with, with those airplanes. Uh, I'm going to be sneaky if I'm Ukraine, right? I'm going to do a little bit of mixed section. So I'm going to fly in a two ship and I'm going to have the F-16 turn his radar off and turn everything off. And I'm going to have the MiG-29 fly on his wing with his radar so that the signature and everything that the Russian gets is, okay, I got a two ship of MiG-29s coming at me. And then once you get into the merge, I'm going to then, you know, have the F-16 guy fire on his radar and all that, because Fighting a two ship of MiG-29s is a very different fight than fighting one MiG-29 and, and one F-16. Uh, and and it, it's a much harder fight if it's not something that you, you it was just sprung upon you, right? Surprise is a wonderful tenet of warfare. So Yeah, and I think a lot of people also kind of kind of miss out on that aspect and they just picture and they go, okay, so we have an F-16. It's going to do amazing things. And, and I do want to pick your brain on how you feel those S-400s are going to fare against the F-16s here in just a sec. But you know, when the U S is launching missions like this, it's no secret. We also have air, like, uh, um, systems that are in place in the sky that protect those from being detected. The, our aircraft from being detected. We did it in Yemen when against the Houthis, right? Uh, are you aware of Ukraine having that capability to be able to also counteract the Russian intelligence as it comes to detecting those aircraft? Um, and how do you see the S four hundreds, um, in comparison to the F-16s, is this going to be a fair fight? Or are we just going to go annihilate them and start pushing them back? Or are we going to see F-16s being shot down? Yeah, so so time will tell. Um, we don't know. But uh, if I ha I'm, I'm going to wager a bet, right? So, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. Um, from everything that I've seen about the S-300s and the S-400s in Russia, based on everything that I was taught, and, and I went to the US Air Force's uh, equivalent of Top Gun, right? So I graduated from fighter weapons school in, in 2000, right? So, nice. so I'm a patch, right? And, uh, you know, tons and tons of intelligence on Russian air defense systems and blah, blah, blah. More, more than I want, right? Bleed out of my eyes. But, but back in the day, you know, before this war started, we were often told as aviators, like, look, if you if you get anywhere close to the S-300 or S-400, you, you better have a good insurance policy because you're dead. Right. You're you're wow. you will just not survive an engagement with an S300 and S400. And 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 what I'm saying really shouldn't shock a lot of people. I, I think if you go back to Congress just you know five, six, seven years ago, the arguments that were made by the Defense Department and Congress were like, look, the F-15, the F-16, and the F-18 are great fighters, but they are no match for where Russia and China are going with air defense systems. This S300 and S400. These our fighters are not survivable. We need the F-22 and we need the F-35 and we meet we need them in significant numbers, right? Mm -hmm. That was the justification for why we bought F-35s. And to be fair, we'd never seen an S-400 in combat operations. We just we we just kind of bought the narrative right from Russia. We we had some engineers look at it. We had, you know, we 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 did some math, you know, you know, back of the bar napkin math and said, yeah, this thing's probably pretty lethal. And what it turns out now, right, is the S-400 and the S-300 do not, are not living up to the, the capabilities stated by Russia when, when they were made or when they were sold. And I'll give you a couple examples. There are two Rush or two Ukrainian Su-35 pilots, right? So the the this Su-25, excuse me. So the Frogfoot, the A-10 equivalent, right? The, the old the old uh, you know down in the mud, ugly looking airplane that does close air support. Each of these pilots has over 300 sorties 
Wow. In Ukraine in the past years. Hard to believe that you can fly an A-10 300, 600 times in an S-400 threat ring and live to tell the tale for two guys, right? Wow, that's and, a and look, very good point. Yeah, and, and to be fair, the S-400 did change their tactics. They're not flying at 10,000 feet on cruise control with smoke and a lucky. They're flying and fighting, right? So the tactics aren't necessarily easy, but they are surviving. Right. And, and that's a, that's a key thing. There's a video that was just released on uh, on X or on Twitter a couple of days ago where an S-400 kind of out in the middle of an open field. So this, you know, it's not hidden. It's not in a mountain. There's no terrain masking. There's there's no tons of missiles. It's not saturated. And two, you know, uh, two storm shadows flew right over the top of it. Right? Yep, I've seen and, that. And, and, it did, and neither one of them got hit. And and that's embar I mean that's embarrassing if you have a yeah, if you have a system much. that's based yeah if, if if it's been advertised as you know if it flies it dies uh, and two cruise missiles that aren't they're not maneuvering these are non maneuvering cruise missiles they're flying on a straight line at altitude at about 300, 400 miles an hour uh, again no terrain masking this is an open field like you, you could even hit it as a receding target <laughs> and they still they still couldn't lock them on and and, and kill them so. so you know, I think I think Turkey has some buyer's remorse here, right? Because <laughs> Turkey bought the S four hundred system and made that the choice over the F thirty five, and they they know that it's not that good. And 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 I'll leave you, you know, Matt, with this this last point about the S four hundred and and perhaps the Russian military industrial complex at large. So last fall, the second largest air show in the world, the Dubai Air Show, happened. And this, of course, is where all the nations go in and they they put their wares on display and try and make military military sales to other nations. Like this foreign military sales, at, the only one bigger is Paris Airship, right? And Russia spent a lot of money, along with the Russian military industrial complex, to put on a pretty good show. They they wanted to make sales of their you know their Su thirties, their their S four hundreds. They did not get one sale out of that entire airship. That wow. the world now knows the the quality and caliber of Russian systems. So this this is a this is a severe impact for for the Russian military. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, and you know, like we as a career ground pounder, for lack of better terms, you know, we'd always say the most important weapon on the battlefield is what's between your two ears, you know, yeah. your, your brain. And it looks like Ukraine's actually figured out ways to actually start defeating those just by using their brain. So, yeah. and, I, and I do think that's far more valuable than technology. I think we rely too much as modern day militaries on tech to keep us safe versus, you know, using intelligence like your, your own brain in order to keep it safe. So yeah, that's, yeah. those are very valid points, truthfully, that I had actually never thought about. So we're likely going to see a lot of success from those F-16s going in. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm betting that they'll, they'll make, they'll make a dent. I, I do believe they'll make a dent. So shifting focus a little bit now more towards the Middle East and Russian influence, going over there. And it's no secret that the U.S. has been in proxy wars against Russia for quite some time now. You know, if you look at uh, what, well, one, what we're doing inside of Ukraine, okay, but also when you start looking at some of the stuff that's taking place inside Syria, and I'll also mention Iraq. And so Russia has been buying their drones from Iran for quite some time now. Billions of dollars worth of drones have been, have been bought from Iran. And I, I feel like that money from Iran is now being, obviously it's not direct, you know, pipeline from you know, Russia to Iran down to the militants on the ground. However, how do you feel? Do you, in your in your assessment, in your opinion, do you feel like 
Iran partnering up with Russia in that aspect gives them a little bit, it makes them feel a little bit more bold to be able to do attacks like these because they now have Russia essentially in their back pocket. I, I think so, but I think it, it's a little bit bigger than that, right? Um, I think you're on to the right track. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that thread a little farther through your through your ears, right? Pull it. Right. Here's here's where I get concerned about the future, and I'm not talking about next month. I'm talking about in the next two years. Sure. You've got defense industries in Russia and Iran and Turkey and in uh, China and Korea that are expanding. Okay, some expanding faster than others, but they're all growing, right? And you've got the Europeans who cannot get to 250,000, 155 artillery shells right. in a year. Three Now three years into this war. Uh, because the military industrial complexes of Europe are, are seriously challenged. Labor is extremely expensive here. There's a, there's myriads of reasons, right? We, I don't need to go into them, but, but they're, but they're stagnant, right? So you, you've got a group of nations that are, are building capacity are building a war machine, if you, for lack of a better term, that in a few years, no matter what happens in Ukraine, you know, if, if, if Russia can get to 2 million 155 artillery shells, if every year, right, even if the war in Ukraine ends, you don't just shut off a production line, right? Um, if you're Iran and you're making these Shahid drones and you're investing them because you've got all this money coming in, you're invest, you, you want more of that to happen, right? So you, you, leaders of nations like this are presented with opportunities that don't normally exist for other leaders because they don't have war machines literally with the light switch on and, and cranking. And where that could lead to in the future is, to me, is very concerning. Yeah, Russia has, like, ever since the Cold War even, has always been a huge proponent of the long game when it comes to the United States. And, and not just looking at, you know, I think in the United States we're very short short term a lot of the times. When we go into conflicts or we have issues around the world, we always look short time frame. But it seems like Russia always has this, this long-term strategy. And my biggest fear, you know, is, is Russia linking up with the DPRK, um, sourcing munitions from them, working with um, Iran on their, on, you know, purchasing drones and them essentially having influence over all of these other nations at that point to then, I guess, start degrading the United States over time, either financially, militarily, however you want to see it in order to start weakening this country. I don't know how you feel about that. That's just, you know, Matt thoughts, tinfoil hat moment when I really start looking at them. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a tinfoil hat a moment. I, I, I don't disagree with you. Right. I, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of nations that dislike the United States and it, and it's very easy to play the long game, China, Russia, Iran, when you're an authoritarian regime. If you, if you don't have to worry about an election every four years like a U.S. president does, you you probably get a much better chance to play along, right? And and so 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 that's the a benefit, right, of, of an authoritarian regime. I wouldn't I wouldn't trade democracy personally no. for that one benefit, but but uh, but it is right. It, it, it is a benefit, right? And um, I, I just uh, 
you know, Turkey's knocking it out of the park with Bakhtari drones. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's uh, the 2023 NATO 2% GDP chart came out and Turkey's actually down at like 1.6, which for the first time they're below 2%. And I started, you know, digging into it. And to be fair, they may not have invested in their military, but they met, they've invested as a government heavily in their military industrial complex. Right. So it, whether it's Bakhtari and by the way, Bakhtari is actually building drones now in Ukraine. Um, the, the CEO of Bakhtari actually is to be the son-in-law of Erdogan. So that's a, that's another interesting tidbit for you right there. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's the, these, these, these military industrial complexes that are growing and I'll add uh, India to that list too. Right. These nations are going to have the ability to influence and compel through coercion neighbors and other places and, and heaven forbid they, they form some kind of an alliance um, because they, they will be quite, quite of a force to be reckoned with. So I think my last question for so you. So that's my tinfoil, right? That's, you <laughs> talked about yours. That's mine. I, yeah. I think you, that's pretty valid in my opinion. And I think my last question for you, how, with all of your experience, uh, with everything that's going on in Ukraine, there's a lot of people here in the United States that are saying we need to secure our border first. Um, we need to take care of the United States first and that we have no interest in Ukraine if it falls to Russia. How do you, how do, how do you fall on that? Do you feel like Ukraine is of strategic national importance to us when it comes to U.S. security and possibly our securities within the region? Obviously, with NATO invoking Article Five, if they go into Poland or you know, how do you see us fitting into all that? And is it of actual importance to the United States to make sure that Ukraine does come out on top? Yeah, so so I know a lot of people like that, right? <laughs> that that say you know we we got to secure our borders. We don't have the money. It's it's too expensive. Uh, and, and these are all, you know, these are all throwaway statements that people make that they've heard from the newspaper or they've read on social media. And, and to be fair, look, if there's anyone even listening, I, I actually try to explain why I believe you can believe what you want. And if you want to listen to talking points, that's fine. Here's here's Jeff Fisher's argument, right? We have been failed as a society in America uh, by the media on both sides. Because the true picture of what Russia is and what Russia isn't has never been pre presented to people, right? Mm -hmm. I can say that because I worked literally with a Russian diplomat for 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 three years, right? And and I I've studied Russia. I've you know I, it, it's it's sick how much I know about Russia, right? And I've watched them react to treaties. But look, when when the media presents this Ukraine situation as kind of like a one-off, look, Russia kind of just went in there. It, it, it's not a one-off, right? Russia went into Moldova and carved off a piece of that called Transnistria. They went into Georgia and they carved off a piece of that called South Ossetia. They carved off another one from the other side of Georgia called Abkhazia. They went into to Azerbaijan and they carved off a piece called Nagorno-Karabakh. So, so this this notion that Ukraine doesn't have, I'm sorry, Russia doesn't have a a grander strategy of of actually, a, you know, the old Russian Empire, I think is is foolhardy. And look, if you don't believe me, just listen to Putin. Listen to the threats that he's levying against Poland and Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. He's telling those nations that they have to be good to Russians. And that's the narrative, right? It's like, if you're not going to take care of Russians, we're going to come in and take care of them. Right. Right. And, and, and to be fair, look, Russians are not being treated poorly in any of these nations. But you know, a Russia who parks illegally on a street in, you know, in, in, uh, in Lithuania, um, 
and then gets a traffic ticket, like he waves the ticket and he says it's discrimination. Like he, he was he was ticketed, right? Because not because he illegally parked, but because he was a Russian. And you know, and and these are the things that 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 Moscow feeds on, and it's completely ludicrous. I, I would rather if if as 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 heartless as some believe this is. And, and look, war is a very heartless thing. Uh, I, you have to be a different person when you are fighting war. Uh, I, I am sorry, I, I am not uh, the person that I'm talking to you right now. And you you know this as well as I do, right? The guy who's downrange and it, it, to survive, you are a very different person, Correct. right? And um, if, if Ukraine is willing to fight and die and burn off Ukrainian blood to win their, nas- their nation back, and look, they don't want to defeat Moscow. That's another throwaway. You know, Russia will never be defeated. Well, they don't want to defeat. Like, that's, that, that, that's foolish. Nobody wants to defeat Russia. They want their territory back. When they get back to their 2013 border, they will stop, right? So this isn't a, you know, march all the way onto Moscow and overthrow it. So, so that's another silly throwaway. But I have no problem giving them the weapons and resources to going to do that. I believe Vladimir Putin is a very, very bad. He's a very smart man, right? You can be smart and bad at the same time. Correct. We have examples of that in in, in world history. But uh, he is not. A, he's not a good actor, and and he's he's a liar. He's not made one treaty that I can think of where he's actually kept his word. So I'm I'm not I'm not even good for like a you know a, a ceasefire and a peace negotiation with the guy at this point. So that, that, that's, that's my take. You know, and my big worry when it, when it goes into this, right, is we're talking about the U S needing to, to fund the operation as it goes into it. And if, if, if we just talk about it from a combat perspective, yes, the United States can supply these things and eventually Ukraine will be able to achieve this victory. My big concern is the U S political side of the house with this bill gets passed. Let's say this bill gets passed in the house that that can is now kicked just a little bit further down the road in an election year. It is obviously going to be one of the things that's used as talking points, either by Republicans or Democrats for talking points. And then we get a new president. And this is not, you know, a short term fix for Ukraine. You know, it's just not going to be a short term problem that they can solve. It's going to take years likely in order for them to get Russia kicked out of all of their terrain. For every inch that they take, they're going to lose Ukrainian lives and those lives need to be replaced. And then they need to get experience before they actually become combat effective again. And so my concern is them actually having the required support over time in order to make it happen, particularly with U.S. politics fronting about, or the United States government fronting about 50% of the supplies that have been going into Ukraine. And if that spigot gets shut off because of politics, then Ukraine's in a very peculiar situation. I would argue if the, if the, if the spigot gets screwed with anyway from a politician, right? Um, I, I love the concept of civilian control of the military. I, I'm a big, I'm a fan of that, right? We shouldn't allow generals to be in charge of them, uh, completely in charge of the military. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I think our politicians have lost their way over the last 10 to 15 years to where politicians believe that instead of just setting an objective for military leaders to, to achieve or a strategic objective, that they've, they've, they've tell, they're telling them how. Right. And, and that, 100%. Has, that, that, that shouldn't be happening. Right. I, I say what you want about the Bush family. Bush won uh, when Operation Desert Storm happened. He looked at Colin Powell and said, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> I, I want Kuwait back. 
right? And, and then left it up to Colin Powell to, to as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to figure out the plan and then go brief him. And, and he said, okay, good, that's that's good, go do that. We have leaders today that that somehow are putting artificial limitations on military and they have they have no understanding of how warfare works. And it, and it's frustrating. We look, I I again I can be critical of the Republicans in Congress and I can be cr critical of Joe Biden all at the same time, right? It, it's yeah. not I'm not trying to be political here, but when when Joe Biden is failing to give long range strike capability or he's limiting it in some way, he, he you know, especially when that's when our our leadership, right? Retired flag officers and active flag officers are voicing this is what they need. General Ben Hodges, General Breedlove, right? These are not dumb guys. Um, I don't know why we're not why why we're limiting that. I, and and it's clear it's being limited from the White House. Yeah, and I think that's something that needs to be developed inside of our own government is what is our stance on the Russian occupation inside of Ukraine? And yeah. what do we want the outcome of that to be? And then provide the resources to reach that outcome. And unfortunately, I don't see a unified stance across the board of this is the U.S. foreign policy stance on Ukraine, and this is what we want the outcome to be. And we are going to fight tooth and nail and provide every resource possible in order to meet this outcome. Prime example of exactly what you're talking about, uh, not to not trash on him. I th and I'll use Obama. I'll give him credit and I'll also take some away from him because you can be critical and you got to give kudos where kudos is due. Um, you know, inside of Afghanistan, we had, you know, the troop surge back in, I forget what year it was, 29, 2009, 2010. But then we also had the mandatory drawdown in 2012. And so when we're on the ground and we're taking terrain and we're doing a very good job against the Taliban, all of a sudden we hit that drawback date and we get ordered to leave where we had just fought for months because of the troop drawdown and we retrograde our way back and then watch day after day of all of our work just being burned to the ground by the Taliban when we actually had them on their heels being pushed back. Yeah. On the flip side, Obama did a very good job inside of Ukraine, in my opinion, for reasons that we discussed as far as our foreign policy goes and supporting the military and making sure that everything was set in place and set in stone how it should have been. And again, it goes down to having a decisive foreign policy on what we want it to look like and allowing the, the experts at B to make that happen. I, would you, I mean, it sounds like you agree with that, you know? Like, yeah, no, I, I do. And, and look, I, 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 I credit Joe Biden for, for some of the things he does in here too. Right. So I, I think that, you know, this notion of giving them a couple of tackums at, at a very strategic time, I thought, I thought was a good move. Right. I think his ability to, to defend Ukraine on a global stage and defend Liz Zelensky is from a diplomatic perspective. He's a very good diplomat. Right. He's a very good politician. So, so I give him credit there. I, I just, you know, his, when, when, when the press is failing to push on him and say, what is our mission? Um, because his only answer right now is we will, we stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Well, well, that's not a military objective, right? No. If, like if I was a military, you know, as a colonel and I went to the general, he's like, hey, so, you know, colonel, what's your what's your objective here? I'm like, sure, I'm just going to stand with them as long as it takes. I get beaten on the side of the head. He's like, dude, that is absolutely not how you learned to build a strategic objective, right? It has to be measurable. Right. It has to be quantifiable. It has to, you know, and, and, and none of that, is, right? So so I think that you know that that is a problem. And I think that's kind of highlighting your, your, your issue. Like I'm not, I'm not so sure what we're what are we doing right uh and I, and I, and to to be fair i think that part of that feeds to the narrative why people don't want to spend more money there i don't know we don't know what we're doing yeah and zelensky is very clear in his goals 
He wants Russia kicked out of all of occupied Ukraine. He wants him kicked out of Crimea. He wants him kicked out of the East. He, and he won't stop until yeah. that objective is accomplished. So when Joe Biden actually says that we're going to back up Ukraine with everything that they need, and that's our stance, in my eyes, that's quite literally what he's saying, that that we're going to back Ukraine until Russia's kicked out of all their territory. But he's never outright stated it, which is, yeah. I think, lack of direction. You know, The president should be providing the direction to Congress on where we want to see things going or where his foreign policy should be going. And then they should be working. I don't want to say hand in hand, because again, they're representatives of the people. And if it's not the people, you know, if it's not the will of the people, then it's another issue, but there's no clear guidance in my opinion from anybody on this matter. Yeah. It's frustrating. Right. I, I, I talked to my other friends on the Hill, right. And, and, um, without, I'm not, I'm not going to name drop and I'm also going to protect some of them. Right. So, but, but, uh, there's, you know, there's a hundred ish uh, expired ATACMs in the U.S. inventory. They're expired, um, and, and they're not on any O plan, UCOM, PACOM. They they can't be by law because they're expired, right? And these are these are items that immediately could go. The, the presidential drawdown authority. We don't have to backfill because we've are actually already bought and built new ATACMs, right? So we don't even need money to replace these. But the but when pushed, the White House says, no, 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 we can't, we can't send those. And when, you know, finally a week later, we get an answer that says, hey, these, um, while they're not officially on anyone's O plan, there's a unfunded request from one of the COCOMs that says that they would like to investigate what it would take to recertify these to actually ex- do a, a service life extension and approve them to to stay good. And you're like, uh, wow, that really? Like there's no money to do that yet, but but someone's asked that. I mean, there was a there was 600 Bradleys that were sitting in a you know out in open field in Texas, right? And you know, and and I don't know if you heard about that, but those are going to like Morocco or or they like when it when it they, and this was just happening a couple last weeks, right? There's people who were who are bound in drums saying, look, a lot of these aren't good, but you could put together three to make one. Like this, this can like, one Bradley's good, right? 300 Bradleys is good. And they're like, no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna send these to Morocco. And look, I don't dismiss that Morocco might have a requirement for Bradleys, but 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 they don't have an existential threat, literally threatening the, the right. existence of Morocco off the face of the earth. So I I, I I I get frustrated about those types of things because we do have things that right now we could be giving. The president does have some money. Uh, I completely agree with him when he says that. Look, I I don't want to use my presidential drawdown authority because I don't have replacement funds to to do that, and and that's true. He's lost his replacement funds. But what he but but what we're not sharing with the American people is actually there's no policy, there's no regulation, there's no law that says if the president uses PDA, that it has to be replaced. Is it perhaps a good idea? Sure, like we we probably should replace some of the things that we're going. But there's no law. Right. He, he, it, it's his law. Right. He's made the rule that says he doesn't want to use it. And he, he probably should should tell people that. Uh, yeah. One hundred percent. And it's, yeah. it's uh, what is it? Transparency, I think, is yes. <laughs> it's the word we're looking for. Exactly. Transparency with yeah. the American people. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. You know, it's just kind of a shame because we do have the ability to be providing a lot more and we're not. And I think a lot of that gets balled up in politics, particularly in an election year. And it's something that, you know, the viewers of this channel we've been warning about for quite some time that as soon as politics starts kicking into effect here, Ukraine, the spigot's going to start getting shut off yeah. um, because it's a very obvious thing and they, they just need to stop doing it. I guess I just want to pick your brain a little bit more if you have, have an extra minute. Sure, go ahead. 
So now that they've reached the Russian defensive lines, they're facing a lot of the minefields, which I do believe is slowing them down quite a bit. And Russia has done a very good job, in my opinion, of allowing the terrain to essentially create fatal funnels, which is where the Ukrainians are being forced to go through. How do you see air support affecting the ground troops ability to be able to get through those strong defensive positions of the Russians in a future ground battle that they're inevitably going to face? Yeah. So let's, 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 let's eat this elephant one minute at a time. Right. So um, the first thing that I, I I think it's important to say is uh, the Russian military has never been and Russian doctrine has never been very good at offensive operations, but it's been extremely good at at defense, right? That Russians are good at defense. Uh, And, and if, if you're a fool, if you think that you can go fight with Russia and just presume that just because they're bad at offense, they're, they're just bad warriors that they're really good at defense. And I think Ukraine learned that lesson last summer, right? Uh, Because they, they they barely took an ounce of, of, of land, right? So, and these minefields are, are good and minefields are a, a part of defense, right? And so Russia's, Russia's got that wired. I think when we talk about air uh, air assets, right? I, I think you're going to have to see coordinated effects, uh, and and it's hard to coordinate air land effects, right? And it's hard it's hard enough just on land to coordinate artillery, infantry, and and armor, right? Now you're you're bringing a whole new do- domain in with you know with batter- battlefield air interdiction and and, uh, uh, and regular interdiction and suppression of enemy air defenses and all the mission sets that go along with the air, right? But what I what I would say is I think that if you can create a couple lanes that you know the, these 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 fatal funnels right that that exist, if Ukraine knows where those fatal funnels are, and then air power at a given time and choosing of the Ukrainian military can go in and neutralize all of the weapon systems that Russia had that would basically be the you know the the killing machines of Ukraine's coming through. Right. So so let's say for three hours, you've you just got F-16s flying nonstop over the top of artillery guns and mortar and 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 everything else. And you're just going to you're just going to pummel. Them, right. And just keep pummeling and pummeling. And, and as those three hours are going, you know, it's it's like Moses going through the Red Sea. Right. You're, you're just going to push everything through as fast as you can and get them to the other side, because once you're on the other side, of the of the minefield you can expand back out right your forces are not it's like crossing a river right on a bridge right so you're on the bridge you're exposed when you're on the other side you can fan back out um and and protect your protect your forces through through aerial uh geographic separation so so that's what i would consider there's probably a couple other ways to 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 eat that eat that elephant but that's probably what i would do do you see them going to cut the land bridge off to crimea sticking to that same strategy being able to share sure. that, yeah, you've got you've got to you've got to you you've got to keep harassing Russian logistics. How, however, you want to do it. As a matter of fact, my my you know you 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 I graciously brought up my books earlier, right? And I and I appreciate that. And um, my fourth book is is called Russian Puppeteer. It's about a fictitious war between Russia and uh, and Ukraine. <laughs> and uh, so it's this not really all like that. The OJ's uh, if I would have done it. Yeah. So, and and by the way, General Breedlove, who was the Yukon commander, wrote the forward report. So I actually sent oh, it to wow. him and said, "Hey, boss, you you remember you remember when we were on VTC?" He's like, "Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah." And I said, "Hey, I wrote this book." So he's like, "Hey, I love it. Can I write the forward?" So he he wrote the forward for it. But um, in that book, it, it's all about finding ways for. It's not all about, but there's there's a, a good portion of that book that's about finding ways to to harass and interdict um, Russian supply lines. 
Uh, and without going too much in the book, when they introduce him, they end up finding a, a, a very worthy high value target uh, that somehow overtakes the idea of of disrupting uh, those lines. But um, the the other thing, that if you're if you're if you got a bunch of readers in the in their audience, the other thing that's really interesting about that book is it looks through the war a lot more through the lens of diplomacy and all those back channel deals between ambassadors and and right. statesmen and diplomats and congressional members and all the things that are happening that nobody ever hears about. It, and all that is actually, I'm not going to say it's 100% true, but it's all based on what, you know, General Breedlove and I saw or heard when we were on those video conferences, just kind of sitting back, listening to civilians make decisions. And I, it, it's not, it's not always good decisions. You know, and I always, I keep saying one last question, but every time you talk, I'm like, <laughs> God, I got to pick his brain about this. I really got to see where he stands on this because you've got a great mind. Um Thanks. So one of the things that recently hit the news also was uh, Trump's statement about NATO. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with it? I'm assuming. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. How, how do you feel that – what are your thoughts? So, look, I, uh, I live in Austria, right? Uh, it's, it's late here, but that's all right. Uh, and, and I've lived in Europe for many years. And um, at the OSCE, I would be antagonized, right? Rib, ridiculed, ribbed, if you will, by by other diplomats, military advisors of the other fifty seven nations. Many of them NATO, Germany, Lithu, uh, Lith, uh, not Lithuania, but Luxembourg, Belgium, and you know, and they would they would say things like, "It's unbelievable that you can't provide universal health care to your people." Yep. Right, and uh, and I knew that the blanket of security that was covering Europe at the time was being footed by the American taxpayer. Cause we were at two, three, 4% GDP some years mm -hmm. uh, on our military defense, but these guys are at 1.2, 1.5 and they never invested. Right. And, uh, and of course there's no argument for that because there's no war going on. Russia was, was not a belligerent at that at the time. And you just kind of nod and go, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible, but I, I appreciate your roads and your, your wonderful, you know, public transportation systems and all the other things go that with your social welfare programs that you've got over sure. here, because you got a lot of ma amazing ones. Right. But, but now, right. So now the shoes on the other foot, right. You've, you've got Germany that in, in the, in the 1990s that went from 7,000 tanks, the German military, and it's down to 600, right? Uh, 600 leopards, 600. And the Germans are like, holy shit, how, how did this happen? And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm calling all those guys that are retired now that were 2011 and 2014. I'm like, hey, how's that military working out for you now, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I um, uh, a little, a little vignette for you, right? So I, uh, the the Belgian uh, military advisor, the colonel that I know, right? I won't say his name so I don't get him go to jail. But he always he he didn't like his he he wished that they invested more, right? And one night he and I had been drinking, uh, and uh, and he said, "Do you know what our you know what our military is? It's a well defended pension plan, <laughs> right? That's that's what that's what their military budget is. It's a well defended pension plan because that's all they they can invest in is, is actually their people. Again, labor is really expensive in Europe, right? So so uh it's it's europe's in a, in a in a tough situation so so back to trump right so i agree with him a hundred percent 
that these nations should not only pay 2%, but they should be in double up into catch up and they should apologize for the years they didn't do it. By the way, Secretary of Defense Gates, right? Um, Robert Gates, who went to Indiana University, right? He's one of my alum buddies, right? So he told him the same thing. He said, hey, you guys, you guys got to do this. And Trump, Trump and he are right. In, in true Trump fashion, though, right, I think sometimes he, he might have gone a little far, right? Yeah. So the second part of the comment on, like, where he would encourage, you know, Russia to do whatever it wants, I think encourage is probably a bad choice of words. I, I think perhaps it would have been wiser to say, I wouldn't be surprised if Russia took advantage of European nations to go do that, right? So. Yeah, A plus on the first part, F minus on the last part. Perhaps he could have been a smarter. Yeah, it's 100% what I said this morning. You know, like if you are going to, if you are trying to be the leader of the free world, if you are trying to be the leader of the free world and you have previously been the leader of the free world and you make a statement like that, that is very impactful. And it's a problem because I, I do believe that they're going to take snippets of that and they're going to be sharing it across all sorts of different countries. All sorts of countries are going to eat that statement up. And in and, and some of these places, the civilian population is isolated from the outside world. And when that's the statement that's being made and coming from a former U.S. president, I think it's kind of troubling uh, what some of these yeah. people are going to see. Yeah, it, it, look, 100% correct. And, and to be fair, as soon as Trump said it, it was all over the media here in Europe. But I, I'll, I'll, give your, I'll give your listeners a, an, another insight into what's going on in Europe, right? So it's not shocking that the European press would be critical of Trump and, and would, would put any splashes across the front page. But last week, the, the newspapers here in Austria, and I've confirmed with friends in Germany and Italy, right, the, all the newspapers, when it was known that Biden was not going to be charged for his uh, retention of classified documents, it came out in the press that said he would not be charged. But there was no mention in the European press that one of the reasons that he was not going to be charged is because the, the, the investigating team came to the conclusion that there were some serious concerns about his mental faculties and his, and his memory. Really? And, and you sit there and wonder, why wouldn't the European press think that that, that would be worthy newsworthy enough for people to know that the leader of the free world has got some some memory issues, right? And and of course, they they don't want him to know that because they they're they're already picking sides in the media. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird what the governments are choosing and what different nations are choosing to blast out there. The uh, yeah, yeah. We'll I mean, but let, let's be fair though. You you know we can end on this, right? So you were you were in Ukraine theoretically, right? And and um, you saw the the OSCE special monitoring mission, right? These were diplomats and civilians that would be running around and basically observing to make sure that no one was violating the ceasefire. And and I had many friends, actually, that were in, in SMMs, and I saw their initial reports that were submitted up, right? So they submit their report to their boss, and then the boss sends that to the supervisor, and the re- supervisor sends that to the region. They all take hacks at it. And by the time it got all the way back to the OSCE, it was everything's fine in the battle space, right? And that's not true <laughs> at all. I, I know. Not right? even remotely true. They, for yeah, those I, who are I, listening I, that don't I, know, yeah. 100% the ceasefire was violated on the separatist side of the house. 1,000% uh, yeah, no. daily. Yeah, on both sides, right? I mean, I, to well, be fair, yeah. it was literally both sides violated. Because at the end of the day, if the if the separatists were doing it over and over again, Ukraine's eventually like, we're going to do it too, right? That is exactly Excuse my language. Sorry, we're, we're going we're gonna to do it too, right? So... So and and of course the, the at, at each level you had instead of having people who were 
who had testicular fortitude in pushing forward the correct information. They were diplomats and politicians who say, mm, we're going to massage these words a little bit because it's just going to be a little too, it's going to sting a little too much for the Russian ambassador and he's not going to be like this. And at the end of the day, you know, it's Russia and the United States and other nations that have to continue our funding every year. And if we upset the Russians, we won't be funded next year and we won't exist as an organization. I mean, it was literally the largest self-licking ice cream cone I've ever seen in my life. Right. And, you know, I think yeah. that's part of that. You know, I often question about what information actually makes it to the top. You know, I've said if you if, you know, in the in the army, we had. uh annual reports, or I'm sorry, you know, annual evaluation. So for the officers, it was OERs for the enlisted, you know, sure. but basically if you were to go over those and you were to read the, the situation reports and the after action review of everything that took place on the ground in that country, regardless of, you know, sometimes we did pass up that, Hey, this area is a problem that, that, that this is bad. But if you were to read everybody's award bullets, everybody's OER bullets, everybody's uh, you know, everybody's sit reps, are, are they just removing the bad parts and passing up the good parts? Because if you were to read all of those things, we would have won that war 10 times over based on yeah. all the information that's constantly getting passed up. And I wonder if that's not what's happening sometimes that they're removing the actual truth. They're not showing both sides. And it, it troubles me to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. You're hundred percent correct. When I was a PRT commander, we, we've, we paid a guy to fix a road uh, three times, right? He, he was the, lead road construction Afghan guy for this region of Zabul province that I was in. And as the PRT commander, we paid him. And I'm, and when I'm saying paying, we're talking six digits, right? Each oh, time yeah. to fix the road. Right. But, but ironically, it was literally the same road. <laughs> right. And it was just destroyed three times. And, and I, ironically, every time he drove the, the road, his car never got hit by an IED. Never. Not yeah, once. That? Yeah. It's crazy. Right. So, but of course, in my performance report, it sits there and says, hey, you know, fix three roads. Of, of course, you know, I've only got, what, 27 characters or something on a line. I can't I can't add the context to be like, yeah, this joker literally, you know, took the United States government for a song and dance for for nearly a million dollars. But, you know, that it is what it is. So that's that, man, that's a whole other that's a whole other discussion. If you like if you ever want to come back and have a discussion about wasted money I'd, in Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq, I will be right there next to you. Yeah. Complaining I'd, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to I'd love to come back, man. You, you let me know when. <laughs> Anytime, man. Anytime. I'd, I'd love to have you back. And I'm sure everybody listening would love to have you back as well. And uh, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and sharing your information. And you have a wealth of knowledge. You have a really great perspective when it comes to things. I think a lot of people really I mean, it even escaped my mind, you know, as, as far as like the, the air defense systems that Russia is employing, you know, and how Ukraine's been defeating them and how those F-16s are being incorporated going against them. And I love the insight of what you were saying when you were going through, you know, the Air Force's equivalent of Top Gun, as you so eloquently stated, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, of what you were told about those those air defense systems and how, they, how yeah. the F-16s would fare against them. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's kind of uh, very insightful, for lack of better terms, very insightful. So thanks. Yeah, no, thank you very much for coming on here. Anytime. Jeffrey, really appreciate you coming on today's show. You are welcome back any time, sir. Thank you very much for your valuable insight into the war on Ukraine, as well as Russian influence, honestly, around the world. If you all enjoyed this and you want to see Jeff back, leave a comment down below and tell me what you think about today's interview. Until next time, peace, love, happiness. God bless. I'm out of here.